18. Our radio salon is here as ever, and we're live this Wednesday morning. Here in the studio, we have Mr. Zhang Huang, independent legal researcher with Lawquant LLC. Good morning. Morning, Alex. And first to introduce her topic today, Professor Choi Kyung from Hongik University Law School. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you both. We're going to play a bit of a clue as to the subject of your discussion today. Let's just go into that right now. What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far, and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? The cries in the dark that nobody hears. Here where I stand at the turning of the years. If there's another way to go, I missed the 20 long yeah, years well, ago. If people are not familiar with the story, the original story, uh, it will take them forever to get there. Uh, but for those who um, did hear a very heartwarming, but uh, a heartwarming story tinged with great sadness just before Christmas, they'll, they'll probably get the link to Jean Valjean there. Yes, uh, although that's not the most famous song from the musical, right? Uh, well, I have watched it so many times, I think I could hear any excerpt of any song from that and it would immediately call to mind. And it was Jean Valjean himself reflecting on the theft which made him question how he reached that point, which is probably very fitting. Uh, yes, but the original theft that actually put him in jail was for stealing a loaf of bread to right. feed his starving uh, this family. This was later when he'd gone to but stay with the priest. Exactly, uh, the priest, and he he actually stole silver from the priest, from, from the church, right. uh, when he had being given shelter and love and kindness. You know? So the story you're going to tell us so today, which it, we will explain in full detail, maybe is more of a cautionary tale for anyone who's now being shown that kindness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a cautionary tale, but it's certainly some food for thought for an us. Appe- well, maybe an appeal for higher levels of mercy, no matter what offence is committed against us. Uh, <laughs> There's a number of messages in Lemmy's Maybe, on <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. um, but uh, I'm sure people will have actually come across this uh, piece of news, which is now actually called by many news outlets as the modern day Zhang Valjiang father and son story. And it relates to a, um, a father and a son who were caught stealing two cartons of milk and six apples from a grocery store in the central district of Incheon. And he was with uh, his 12-year-old son at the time, and the grocery store employee spotted them, uh, called the police. But then um, when the man realized he he was being caught, he was so apologetic uh, and he was crying, saying that they hadn't eaten and they were so hungry. It's, and, oh, it's, and, and that is what really has, has gripped the hearts of, of the nation. But even just the contents of the theft know, are, are yes. particularly interesting. Like th- these are kind of healthy food items. <laughs> I mean, people question milk's benefits, but uh, apples, rather than, say, grabbing some he could have choco for, pies yes, or, or know, so, something... <laughs> Or higher priced items. But, right, you know, was... that too. But, you know, he could go for something stodgy and filling that's not necessarily healthy. But it, it's, it's something quite noble in trying to seek apples for one's family. Mm. And, I mean, obviously the story really tugs at the heartstrings of anybody who hears it. And it 
did, you know, for the store, store owner and as well as the policeman who came to actually make the arrest. So the owner, after he, hearing the story, you know, declined to press charges against the man. And the policeman um, who came to make the arrest actually took them to a nearby restaurant and gave, you know, bought them a meal, uh, a soup, you know, be, uh, to feed them rather than actually take them to the, the police station. Well, that's also very much a departure from the uh, Les Miserables story because in, in the movie version, Russell Crowe's character uh, hounds Jean Javert, Valjean or, yes. or yeah, Javert indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hounds Hugh Jackman throughout the whole movie pretty mm. much. Uh, so the, the policeman was certainly being good Samaritans in this case. Uh, and then there was a third bystander who had watched that episode unfold in the grocery store. He was, a, he was a man in his 60s and he went to an ATM, withdrew cash, stuffed it into an envelope and went to follow them to a, the restaurant and gave it to the son and just left without saying a word. Which is also a bit more sympathetic than some of the citizens, whether we're talking about the novel, the the musical or the movie. I don't want to give the impression that, you know, Les Miserables is only a movie. I have to keep, keep stressing that. to follow that up, the son, yeah. having looked into the envelope, realising that it was cash, actually ran after the man to give it back to him. Right. And who, who refused. And so this is you know, such a heartwarming kind of story. And it became much more well-known after it was recounted by President Moon in a meeting with his aides at the Blue House. Um, saying that, you know, the Korean society still has hope and human kindness left, but that we shouldn't be relying just on the kindness of, you know, ordinary citizens to help these people in need and to ensure that the welfare system is functioning better to provide them with the assistance that they require. And Zhang Huang, just to get your reaction to this story, I'd also like to ask you, what you make of the fact it's got so much attention, even aside from President Moon publicising it, which obviously gave it a huge boost, the fact that the police responded in this way initially and that someone witnessing the scene decided to give some money, there must have been something very touching about this man and his son. It's, yeah, I mean, it's out the, of the ordinary. I mean, the whole incident is a very heartwarming incident where, you know, uh, the outcome is something that we, we can all share and say, hey, the, maybe the, the world is not such a bad place after all. I suppose kind of a, as a cynic, uh, I, I guess I have to insert, is that, you know, I saw a number of editorials sort of saying that, hey, why is it that the, these, this family had to rely on, you know, you know theft, basically? I mean, what is the rap, uh, recent rapid uh, increase in, you know, welfare uh, programs that by the government? And, you know, I kind of look few things up and, you know, you know, these cynical editorials that come out don't really, you know, take into account that, you know, South Korea, as far as, you know, these social welfare programs are concerned, is actually one of the, you know, the, the kind of bottom feeders among the OECD countries. Yeah. I mean... You are absolutely right. Um, so this man, a 30, the 34-year-old man, he was supporting his elderly mother, uh, who was bedridden, who is bedridden, I should rather say, uh, and a 7- and 12-year-old son, so two sons. The younger son was receiving a child sort of subsidy of 100,000 won a month, and the whole family was getting around 1.6 million won per month in terms of substance, subsistence income, which is given by the government. But after you pay for your rent, your water, electricity, gas, uh, telephone bills, 
that you basically have about 3,000 won left each day for food. And for a family of four, that's simply not enough. Right. And some people were pointing out the date on which this offence occurred, the theft occurred, which was around the 10th, I think, of the month. And the payments are made in the middle of the month. And so by the time you know the first or the second week of the next month comes around just before the the, ne- the the monthly payment you know you are basically down to nothing you know you have no way yep. to feed your family and so they were de- driven to you know he was driven to desperation to steal you know this this food so it's not enough to say well hang on i mean he's young he should be able to work because he himself was suffering from diabetes and therefore actually couldn't work anymore um so we do have to look at, are we really doing enough? What, did you mention, um, just out of curiosity, where the, the, the mother of the, the, the sons was in this story? Uh, there was no mention of the mother. Right. So. Uh, no, just out of curiosity, because, of course, being a, if he is a single parent, mm. then um, it's a full-time job taking care of two sons, especially if the grandmother's not able mm. to do so. Um, we'll continue with this. We might ponder... Um, while we get to our hourly bulletin, how we would live on 1.6 million one a month, even as just one person, let alone looking after a family of four. But um, as I said, we'll get back to you right after this hourly bulletin. Good morning to you. It is 8.30. You're listening to TBS EFM this morning, live on Christmas Day morning. And we are in the midst of our radio salon this week with something of a Christmas special because we've introduced this topic of South Korea's Le Miserable story. Uh, Differences being, so far at least in this story, that uh, citizens have shown great kindness and police have shown great kindness to the Jean Valjean character who had to steal or felt the need to steal a relative handful of apples and a couple of cartons of milk. Professor Cho, you brought this topic in for us today. Yes, and you know that Incheon, Zhang Valjang, father and son story is not really the only instance of Zhang Valjang-like story that have happened only recently. You know, there was just, you know, um, early this year, this year, a young man who broke into a convenience store and stole a frozen pizza and some bread because he was also hungry. He hadn't eaten. Mm, mm. Um, he was only, what, 24 or something like that. And when that story became news, uh, POSCO learned about it. So he must have come from that area. And they actually offered him a job. Uh, and he said he was willing to do anything, anything whatsoever, you know, really showing enthusiasm and passion. So that was a, uh, a happy ending. There was another case of a man breaking into a bakery. This was in Yongsan area and eating at one sitting eight servings of bread and cake at night. And uh, he was caught on CCTV and the police uh, was looking for him. But the owner of the bakery said also that she didn't want to press any charges if he was doing that because of hunger. Right. I mean, he's hardly taking them to sell them on or something like that, right? If, he, he did if he's still, sitting there eating it all. He did steal cash out of the till, but okay. you know, she uh, decided to overlook it. There was another middle school student 
student who broke into a hanbok store to steal hanbok to sell because the student was being looked after his grandmother who fell ill and couldn't earn any money anymore. And so he, this you know, little boy, had felt the need to go and make money. And the only way he thought he knew how was to basically go and steal hanbok from, from a store. Uh, we, we have those kind of cases and we have... Also, some other extreme cases where people actually have starved to death uh, or have decided to take the extreme way out because they couldn't pay rent uh, or felt otherwise that they simply couldn't continue anymore. And the question is, you know, we have these, you know, sort of heartwarming stories uh, of people helping in other people in need. But at the same time, these continue to recur over and over and over again, just yeah. with some variations. And so what is, you know, the problem? What is the fundamental problem? Yeah, well, I mean, difficult to pinpoint one fundamental problem, but we can pinpoint some fundamental hard facts that food is being wasted on a daily basis in this country and every developed nation around the world, whether it be from restaurants, supermarkets or just homes. And if that food was redistributed, no one would have to go hungry. You're right. And, you know, um, on the one hand, we have like people who are going without food. And on the other, there are people have become so jaded of ordinary food that you have to have like um, different sort of gourmet type uh, food to tempt your palate. Yeah. This news story was particularly memorable for me because, you know, sometimes when you're look, reading news online, you have like very strange or interesting juxtapositions of news articles. And this particular news item was kind of right next to another article which was talking about the food trend for this year's Christmas. And you know what's in this year in terms of food? Well, my Christmas meal has been the same pretty much for my whole life. So That's I'm, because I have no idea. Keeping to a tradition, <laughs> but apparently this year the in food is stollen and Wang oh, Shou. I so. I'd heard about that. Yes. Okay. In fact, I've 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 had uh, stollen offered to me twice in the last two days. Have you really? So and stolen. I'm looking food. at my radio team here because they're very familiar with one of those offerings. And it was <laughs> delicious, I must say. Um, but uh, but yeah, it does give you a pang of guilt when you're enjoying finer delicacies when people are having to grab frozen pizza or apples or, or any other very basic item. Zhong mm. Huang, just to bring you back into this conversation as well, what would you do uh, in this country? What would you do if you were at that point where you're just below or even far below the poverty line who do you reach out to for help well i mean there are programs but i think especially if you're in a desperate circumstances it's hard to actually you know go out and proactively seek out those help um it is true that you know you know last couple of years the welfare programs in south korea has improved but as i pointed out if you actually compare against other oecd countries i mean the as a percentage of gdp spending korea is actually near the bottom of the oecd countries in terms of public uh, social public spending i mean oecd average is slightly over 20% but korea is slightly over 10% mm-hmm. the only countries that uh, spend less as a you know portion of gdp on a public social spending is chile and mexico i mean the countries like latvia hungary I mean, they spend a lot more as a percentage of GDP. I mean, and they're something... much smaller economies than, than us. In fact, welfare spending has increased dramatically just in the last decade. So um, s- since what, 2008, 
Uh, it's gone from something like 8 trillion won to 18 trillion mm. won. So more than doubled in that space. But as Mr. Jung pointed out, you know, it's no way near enough and no way near enough in spending in terms of, you know, comparative countries that we can actually, uh, you know, sort of measure ourselves against. And th- the thing is, um, particularly at this time of the year, we see a lot more charity drives you know, to raise donations for the needy. Yeah. And we encourage people to sort of make these kind of one-off uh, you know, donations and things like that. But we seem to be much less forthcoming when it comes to a more basic sort of universal kind of charity because the word charity has come to mean this sort of specific um, meaning of giving to the poor. But originally it was actually um, the love for universal love love for Indeed, humankind, yeah. right? So the biblical reference to faith, hope, and love was actually faith, faith hope, hope, and charity. It exactly. still is if you pray the rosary. True. You, you pray yes. for the faith, hope, and charity, or mm-hmm. many people would pr- pray for those particular things. So rather than simply relying on charity, a specific kind of charity, shouldn't we be looking at more a universal kind of charity? Right. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, the, the thing is, often that word is also replaced by another one, which is tax, uh, to, to meet this welfare. And we, we do want to move on to our, our next subject, but do we have a, a responsibility to increase taxes or do we need to just start by better dealing with the resources we have, i.e. without increasing a single penny's worth of tax, redistributing the waste food, for example. There is actually a study which says that it, um, we, we could pay, provide an income of basic income, a universal basic income for every single person in Korea of 300000 one per month without having to raise one single one in taxes. Right. Obviously, that amount is not enough you know, to support a person. But once you have a universal income, then those people who actually don't need that, they can be taxed additionally to raise more and then they can be redistributed to those people who are in need. And But this way, you actually have more people on the on the, on the the radar and not leaving people falling through the gaps. Thanks for bringing in a very important issue, uh, all the more poignant at Christmas time. And let's hope that... It's not just for Christmas, indeed, the sentiment that uh, that in January, the, the January is notoriously a challenging month for many families after overstretching at Christmas time, uh, that no matter what plight people are in, that uh, we'll, we'll keep a look on our neighbours. And that's where it starts, our neighbours, right? We hear about starvation in other countries. Uh, you only have to look next door to, uh, if everyone does that, then then we'll be in a better shape than we're in right now. Speaking of uh, neighbours, though, what happens if your neighbour happens to be someone you're doing battle with? This was the famous story of 1914. Zhang Huang, over to you. Yeah, I thought I might actually uh, take a little bit of a historical walk down the memory lane, to be exact, about 105 years ago, right during the, uh, uh, the, the First World War, which lasted from 1914 to 1918. And those of uh, listeners, those of you who are history buffs, you might have heard about the famous Christmas truce of 1914, which happened between the Christmas Eve and Christmas of 1914, uh, basically in the lines where English and the the Germans stood off. Basically, for two days, a spontaneous truce uh, arose among the, the troops and the low-ranking officers. They basically said, hey, this is Christmas. Let's not fight. 
and then they started fraternizing each other. They shared, you know, drinks, and you know, they actually held the joint services, sang carols together, and actually, you know, they decided to bury their dead. And this is kind of kind of miraculous uh, break in the war, which was, you know, you know, the upper echelon of the military on both sides were very upset about it. But you know, it kind of happened in a very much as a grassroots uh, level. On the other hand, it, 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 it was only in the first year that this happened. The following years, you know, the war lasted four years. The so following Christmases, the generals on both sides were fairly successful in suppressing any attempt to, you know, repeat this uh, truce. And I thought, you know, we might actually want to, you know, kind of think and, you know, talk about this instant is, you know, what it tells about our democracy and war and kind of a generational right. conflict that arises in this story. Be- before we went into sort of the um, look at the what the implications of it, I, I was actually curious as to you know, which side made the overture first? Because I was thinking to myself, I bet it was the Germans. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it was the Germans who, you know, began the overture. And I, I guess that because Christmas is such an important occasion for the Germans. Mm. And it actually starts on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the rest of the world, Christmas is Christmas Day, right? The 25th. But in Germany, Christmas is actually Christmas evening. So Christmas yeah. Eve. Like, well, likewise... For my Icelandic family, it's always, Christmas Eve was the big one. Right. And, and you know, it's the most important uh, festive occasion in the year, uh, far higher up than, you know, let's say Easter or any other, you know, um, ho- holidays. And the thing is, I sort of tell my friends, I wish all of you can experience the German Christmas at mm. least once in your lifetime because... Germany just does Christmas like nobody else. Well, the fact that you can go to London now and find German Christmas markets throughout the city uh, is is testament to the fact that the, the, even today uh, the, the British appreciate the, the German approach to Christmas mm. and, and, so and welcome those traditions. I, I can imagine that these German soldiers, you know, in the trenches would have felt at least on Christmas Day they wanted to maybe escape the, the, the miseries of war and feel this Christmas spirit. And it was recipro- uh, reciprocated by the English troops, but didn't happen along the French lines or the Russian lines or when the or along the Turkish lines or Australian lines. So it actually does involve some you know cultural affinity where you know the English and the Germans really did really place a lot of emphasis on Christmas, and French were pretty mad that they were invaded by the German troops, and much of the French territory was uh, was inva- occupied, and Russians actually they. Uh, uh, Celebrate Christmas on a different day because their slightly uh, their church calendar is slightly on a different system, and obviously, you know, Turks as Muslims didn't really celebrate Christmas. Mm. Uh, the um, veracity of the stories, though, that th- this is legendary, and often for me and and for many other people growing up in in Britain, you'll hear it in the context of a of a football match taking place um, between enemy lines. It's not clear exactly. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like it was just the the neat uh, story that we're told, but rather, as I think you suggested, Zhang Huang, more um, more sporadic and and happening in several places along the lines, and and some of those stories gathered together to create one 
neat narrative. Yeah, I mean, football game, uh, game, you know, the story is, is supposed to be the most, you know, the poignant story. But actually, if you trace uh, along, you know, where that story came from, it be kind of becomes well, I, you know, it becomes kind of the third party accounts, and it wasn't clear there was actually a soccer ball of uh, football available, and the ground might have been not not really conducive to actually have a you know full on full squad game, and you know, it's really sketchy. I mean, the historians who have looked at looked at it have basically said we're not really sure if the football game ever actually took place but what is clear is that there was a truce and the, the troops on both sides actually fraternized with each other they sang hymns together they held like Silent services. Night which has the benefit of being sung Actually, in as, English as, as well as German as yes, Professor Cho mentioned <laughs> I mean that's supposedly how the whole truce actually started because you know uh, German troops were sent a bunch of Christmas trees by you know the, the, then uh, the German emperor and the German troops started singing Silent Night uh, in German and the English troops began reciprocating you know the singing their own carols and basically supposedly that's how this you know grassroots truce came came about and this is where we can really imagine the point that you were making before um professor chow because even if let's say the british troops didn't appreciate german christmas traditions when they hear something like silent night regardless of the language it was sung in that would really hit home for them the the same song right Mm. the same music and so even if they didn't know the words they had the english version and so they could reciprocate if they'd chosen a different carol that had (laughs) no relevance (laughs) in english at all that would have been perhaps a totally different outcome (laughs) that might have been but what was depressing for me uh, mr Huang pointed out this earlier. The, the fact that any effort to do something similar in subsequent years was completely quashed by the, the generals. Right. Uh, so this spontaneous grassroots you know, movement by the foot soldiers, um, just so that they could feel like human, you know, for even just for one day. But also was, the tragedy, mm. I mean, tied very much into what you've just said there, the tragedy of the next day or whatever day it was that they started fighting again, mm. potentially killing the person that you were just fraternising with. You were singing hymns with, you know, the, just the night before. Because you would think, like in a childlike sort of way, that if you'd reached that moment of truce, it would last. There'd be some way to make it last. And that could have been a whole turning point for World War One. Obviously, it was a world war and couldn't be resolved in in one area of the Western Front. But but nonetheless, if only it had been up to those particular men who who gathered together to sing carols. Mm, But, but, you know, I think at least certainly in that first year, nobody thought that the war was going to last as long or or the the casualty would be as as great as it turned out to be. Everyone thought that the war was going to be quite short, that... uh, People would be able to go home pretty soon, and they just by Christmas to... actually. That's what the leaders on both sides were saying that you know there would be a decisive end to the war pretty soon. And you know the whole war. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, it's kind of a tragedy in the sense that you know it showed a great ineptitude on both sides. Uh, you know, the generals on both sides kind of didn't realize what the uh, you know the reality of the war. So they often ordered suicidal charges against machine guns, and which resulted in basically you know in the, the, throughout the you know, four years of war, about nine to eleven million soldiers died, which is kind of staggering number. In considering that back then there was no strate- strategic bombing, no nuclear weapons. Yes, poison gases were used, but, you know, their effectiveness was quite limited. So basically, you know, 9 to 11 million people were gunned down. 
individually. So I mean, to, to, to think that that kind, I mean, kind of, I mean, I think it does kind of speak volumes about kind of a generation divide between the leaders who led you know countries into the war for World War One versus the you know very young men who actually you know, spontaneously organized this truce, Christmas truce. The, the fact that we've not made nearly enough progress as a, as a human race was highlighted pretty poignantly by the artist Banksy. Uh, we mentioned briefly this work of art yesterday. I'll, I'll repeat it. If anyone hasn't seen it, you should check it out. It's um, a bullet hole that forms the, the shape of the cross. And it's, um, it's hotel art, it's been described as, uh, and, and it's been titled The Scar of, of Bethlehem. But the, the, the fact that bullets are still flying on a very regular basis around the world, the fact that even at Christmas time, despite the prayers, the religious leaders calling for peace, we're not seeing peace. What, what you know, what's the... Is there a big lesson still from World War One? Is there, is there a takeaway that we can share this Christmas time that would make a difference in 2020? You know, I was actually thinking about, you know, some, could something like this happen in modern day warfare? You know, if if there was a war going on somewhere in the world and at Christmas, you know, could the soldiers on the ground actually come to a spontaneous truce like it happened in 1914? And I was thinking... Most of wars actually happen remotely nowadays. You know, there is like so much um, that's done by drone strikes uh, and remotely operated um, uh, machinery that you don't really have so much kind of combat engagement. And also cross cultures. Uh, Mm. It it, it does happen, of course, but we don't often hear of, say, Christians fighting Christians in a way that would allow them to celebrate Christmas together. Mm. But but there is a comparison, I think, that's quite interesting. That of, say, Chuseok or Solal and, and the potential for North and South Koreans at the border to, to, to recognise each other. I, I think there have been the occasional sort of, you know, passing of gifts uh, between particularly guards along the borderline. Um, but whether that would sort of be extended to that kind of, you know, singing hymns. Well, Maybe not, not hymns, singing hymns, but you but, know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, mm. you, in order to recreate this story, there's got to be a shared, shared identity culture, of yeah. some kind. Shared, shared culture, at least, mm. yes. Mm. And, I, and I suppose the tragedy of the story is that it only lasted for a couple of days. And, you know, people went back to killing each other, uh, the you know, millions of people. I mean, so, I mean, it, it, the story holds some hope, but at the same time, I guess it's kind of a terrible story in the sense that, you know, any kind of, you know, subsequent efforts to organize such truce was ruthlessly, you know, quashed by the you know, upper echelon of them, both sides right. militaries. It, it, it's a beautiful light that gains its meaning from the profound darkness <laughs> surrounding it. I, I mean... Um, you brought this quote, uh, Mr. Wang, man, war is young, dying and old men talking. And that's uh, most often attributed to Roosevelt. Yes. Is that, is that right? So is it still the case that war is young men dying and old men talking? Well, certainly, you know, the most modern militaries are, you know, staffed by young men. And the people who actually make decisions about wars and, you know, the politics in this world are old men, basically. There, there does, I mean, throughout the history of humanity, I'm sure there have been countless atrocities against men, women and children. But it does feel like um, 
we we have very little respect in urban warfare, for example, for mm. for the plight of completely innocent civilians, yes. regardless of mm. young or old. The um, the other, compa- you know, I was just thinking about this whole shared identity thing. Maybe that is something that could be shared, maybe not on Christmas itself, but as a shared identity. Uh, Sunni and Shia Muslims, for example, sharing mm-hmm. uh, certain traditions mm-hmm. and differing on others. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there, are, there are some comparisons from this story that could be carried forward, whether it's possible or not. Perhaps all we can do is... Get on our knees and pray as the Christmas message goes. Um, for both of you, thank you so much and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for coming in live for this special radio salon today. Thank, thank you. you very much. And uh, we'll do it again next week. Um, in fact, next week will be the first day of the new year. So this was our last radio salon of, of 2019. Um, but... Uh, we'll continue this morning with a quick final message before handing over to our next show if you want to still have your say anytime we can pick up the thread tomorrow as well a good way of doing that is through Twitter at EFM this morning